Hi, my name is Christina Honer. Our reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 to 21 and 31 to 35. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The word of the Lord. I'm Johnny Cursina, the lead pastor. If you're visiting with us, as Dean said at the very beginning of the service, today is an uh, unusual day for us. We have a very short Holy Communion service, and then we will be going by foot, shuttle, and whatever way we can get there to a house nearby to do outdoor baptisms and church picnic. If you have kids in here and they're noisy and squirmy, that is okay. Um, we don't, normally kids get to go out for kids' groups. Um, if you need to, there is a room across the way you can use either for nursing or as a nursery. And then uh, parents, there is also the larger uh, build, building that's the room over there with the wood floors that you can take advantage of. I feel like if I say it, kids are going to want to go there. Um, do you have memories of a family that you grew up in? Or do you think maybe your kids do? So I talked to some of my kids. I have kids who are older now. They're college age and older about kind of some of their memories, and it reminded me of some of mine raising them. Um, not that they're you know, fully, fully raised, but for the most part. But when they were really little, we did pizza movie night every Friday night. We actually made pizza and made pizza, did pizza movie night every Friday night. When our kids were really little, for a little bit, we lived in England, and one of the things that we would do with them is we would go to castle ruins, so not really nice castles, castle ruins, just a bunch of stones, but occasionally a turret. And with my boys, who were at a certain age, we would pretend like we were being attacked by enemies. So we would have, like, pretend bow and arrows, and we had nerf swords, and we would battle bad guys, baddies, as they called them in England, across the castle. Now, as they've gotten older, one of the things we all enjoy is our fireplace room, which is in the front of our house, especially at Christmas when we have a tree in it. It doesn't have a TV, and it's actually a room where there's music playing, generally, Christmas music, starting somewhere in October, the normal time. <laughs> and, and we read, and the fire's there, and it's just a great time to be together in the same space. I also remember growing up um, as a kid and time with family, and some of my favorite times were with extended family, like cousins, aunts, uncles, which would be at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And if we went over to my Aunt Patty's house, one of the things my sister and I would do, and I don't know if she remembers it, but I remember it, is spying on the adults. I don't know how many of you guys have played spying on the adults at like a, a Thanksgiving or Christmas. So the idea is basically you run around a house 
and you don't get seen by the adults, which amazingly, they can never see you, but you can always see them. And so we would just run all over the house, up and down the stairs, peeking around corners, just having great memories of that time of being a kid and making fun of just an environment that I was in at that moment. Now, I know that as you look back on family and growing up, not everybody has good memories. Not all memories are fond memories. And for some of you, thinking about your family of origin is really hard, or it's very sad. It comes with a lot of pain and trauma that maybe you're still working through. Or you look around your life, you look around at other people right now, you look at your own life and you think, my life is not where I want it to be. I thought I would have this and this and this, and my family doesn't exist. We live in a culture today in which more people live by themselves, more people are single than have ever been in American history, at least. In the 1960s, only one in eight American adults lived by themselves. Today, it's one in four live by themselves. And for the first time ever in US history, over half of adults are single. And that's a trend that's going that direction. So people tend to be single um, more and more nowadays. And the, the problem, though, is the church, especially over the past 30, 40 years, the church has not done a good job of people who do not match kind of this format that has been created in the American dream sort of thing, married with children. The church has created the nuclear family as an elevated source of like, this is what it means to have achieved life and life to the full. And as a result, we've undervalued single people. I remember a conversation a number of years back um, with a person who was divorced and a part of this church who talked about how hard it was to enter a church on a Sunday morning. She said this, it is hard to come into the church on a Sunday by yourself. It's a place with perfect families. I know they're not, and they have issues, but it looks like it. And oftentimes, we've taken somebody who is slightly older and still single and think, oh, they're incomplete, right? Why isn't he married yet? And so the job of all kind of people in a church is to set them up on dates. So I wonder what we would do if 33-year-old single Jesus walked into our church. If he walked into an average church in America, would he walk in, basically a guy who's not showered in days, his hair's all over the place, and he's wearing Birkenstocks, and he tells you he just quit his job a few years ago to go hiking around the countryside with his friends. And you guys would say, he needs to get married. <laughs> we live in a culture that has a very different way of doing family and community than has ever been the case. We live in a modern world, an individualistic world. Now, it has a lot of good things. In America today, there's a lot of upward mobility. You can become who you want to become. There's economic opportunity. Anyone in America can, if things go right, become rich, famous, president, it doesn't matter. But our modern individualistic culture is also transient. We don't live in the same places. We're all over the place. We are fractured relationally. We don't have cohesive communities. And we are the loneliest culture that has ever existed. Most of our relationships, as this image will show, are relationships of proximity and convenience with shared interest. 
So if you looked at what a family looks like for an average single person in America, it is a few close friends, a few others that are at other circles of friendships, and it's like a scattershot. But then you move towns or cities, and it continues to look like that. We do that as single or married. That's sort of how we do life nowadays. Some people close to me, some others not as close, and if we move, it changes. We have few long-term friends. Now, it was very different in the traditional world, the Old Testament world. In the Old Testament and traditional world, there were three generations of families who would live in the same town, the same village, in fact, on the same piece of land. And so basically, it would look like this. Rather than my cousins live over there or in a different city, you probably all lived on the same plot of land. You and your brothers and your sisters, if they were still single, you lived in the family unit with multiple homes on a piece of land, and you worked together, you raised kids together. If somebody was sick, there was somebody there to care for them. So it didn't matter whether you were uh, 70 or seven, you had lots of kids to care for and lots of parents to care for you <laughs> in that old way of doing things. You celebrated life together, you buried people together. You were never alone. It was a good place to know that you belonged somewhere. But the ancient world and the Old Testament world made an idol of race and clan. Anybody who didn't look like you or wasn't a blood relative was outside and not as valuable. And on top of that, if you were single or you were unable to have kids or you didn't belong in that culture, you were from a foreign land, you could never get in. You were always an outsider, always less of a person. And that's why it makes simply amazing what Jesus does in the New Testament when he redraws family, not around blood and clan and ethnicity, nor around marriage, but on faith in him. In our sermon series that we started last week, we're looking at how we become the people of God, the people that God has designed us to be. We're walking through the New Testament, and it involves uh, the, the way we're titling it is also this second-person plural. So there's a second-person plural is you, but all of you, because nearly every promise in the New Testament is for you, all of you. So it is ustedes in Spanish, y'all in the South, Use in the Northeast. And of course, as I said last week, my favorite, Yins, which is in the 412. It's this area of Pittsburgh that is where anyone says that. No one else does. But you get the idea. The New Testament talks about you, all of you. You're meant to be a community, becoming that sort of community, to step into that. And Jesus calls us into that. Paul builds on it, and it's part of the vision at the end of time, is that, that God is forming a people for himself, that his desire and love is not just for you or you or you, it is for you and for you to become his bride, his community, his family, his city, his people. And we're called to relate to God, not just individually, but corporately together. In Mark chapter 3, we get the incident where Jesus makes it very clear that he is defining family different than his culture did or any culture has. We start in verse 21 where his actual blood family says something a little bit unnerving. 
And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, arrest him, for they were saying, he, Jesus, is out of his mind. So on one level, just know that if you're not sure if you can trust the New Testament's reliability, this is, reason, this is one of the proofs of why it's reliable. You would not include a story like that if you had written these made-up stories about Jesus to prove that he was a Messiah, a king, the Lord of the universe, and said his own family thought he was nuts. But his family thought he was crazy. Because Jesus was going around gathering people to follow him. He appointed 12 to be his apostles or his disciples. He was reconstituting Israel as the new people of God and saying, all of it is found in me. Come and follow me. And his family said, he's crazy. So they were trying to protect him from the religious authorities who wanted to get rid of Jesus. They were trying to protect themselves and their honor in the community that was being shamed. And then Jesus' response is great because his mother and his brothers come to a house where he's teaching. Jesus is inside the house. All these disciples are sitting around listening to him, and they say, hey, your mom and brothers are outside. Jesus looks around and says, who are my mother and my brothers? It is those who do the will of God. These are my mother and brothers and sisters. He's talking about disciples. And that's crazy. Because he's saying, look, mom and his actual blood brothers, you guys aren't my, my true eternal family. Yes, you're my blood family, but you're not my true eternal family. His true eternal family includes all of his disciples. And in the list of the apostles that we just read about, that included one guy named Simon the Zealot, who had previously been a revolutionary trying to overthrow the government. Another one was Matthew, a tax collector, who was trying to uphold the government. So one was a, you know, like uber right-wing politic guy. The other one was an uber left-wing politic guy. And they're both now in Jesus' family. And not only that, if you look in Luke 8, Jesus' family includes women, one of which was a woman named Mary Magdalene, who before meeting Jesus, according to church history, was a demon-possessed prostitute. That's a bad track record. You don't want to invite her into your family unless you're Jesus. It says, repent, believe, come follow me. And yes, you're all part of my family in Christ Jesus. It included the rich and the poor and eventually people of all nations, which is why most of us get to be part of the family of God. Jesus is saying, it is those who do the will of God. Verse 35, do the will of God. What does it mean to do the will of God? Well, according to the context of these verses, doing the will of God is sitting at Jesus' feet. He's looking around at all these people sitting there. He says, my family are those who do the will of God. They sit and are attentive to me. They're following me and recognize me as their Lord, their Messiah, and their Savior. When Jesus is pulling this new family of God, he's redrawing family around himself no longer is blood or marriage or clan, and he's inviting everyone in. In Galatians 3, we read that all of us are sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That means we're kind of family, where God is now our father. And it includes Greek and Jew, when previously it was just Jewish, slave and free, when previously it was really just free, male and female, when previously it was just through the men that you had access to God, 
And what he's talking about is a new family that we would actually call the church. Jen Oshman, in her book, Welcome, part of the Love Your Church series, wrote this, the assumption of the entire New Testament is that as we surrender to Jesus and join the universal church, we will give our lives over to life in a local church. Church life is meant to be daily, local, and close, both geographically and relationally. And that's been one of our vision and values as a church. It's gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family. The idea in that is to take that Old Testament image that I had drawn up and redraw it like this, where it's talking about the people, we, we are the red, always the red, just so you know, you're the red dot. That whether you are single or married, whether you have kids or have never had kids, whatever stage of life you're in, you will have aunts and uncles, grandparents, children, grandchildren, cousins. A church can be the sort of place where even if you've just moved here, you can connect in to a broad constellation of meaningful relationships. And this is a real need. You know, connecting in and making those friendships and building a community is one of the greatest needs that we're finding, not just in our lives, but in this church in particular. It's one of the reasons why people will leave Christ Church Vienna. It's because they, they struggle to find friends. In the book, The Great De-Churching, that just came out, James, Jim Davis and Michael Graham, they note that all these people who have left the church over the past 20 years, the one thing that might get them back is friendship. If a friend invited them, or if they felt like this is where they could find friends. At Christ Church Vienna, that's one of the reasons why we emphasize small groups. So if you come on a Sunday morning, you're the red sitting over there, right, on the far left here. We've given you this image. It's one of your favorites, I know. So coming on Sunday mornings means you're just kind of sitting there. Getting involved in one of our fall or spring small groups means that you're getting to know some other people, and hopefully, over time, you find that one or two other people you can connect closely with. You build those friendships but we do Sundays, we facilitate small groups, but the last one is actually the hardest, and it's one that we can't really totally facilitate. Because friendships and becoming friends and stepping in this way is actually a lot clunkier and harder than I'm making it sound. And so we have a vision that a three-generation extended family would look like in our church, and it's like this last image where you would have close friendships, and most likely your closest friends are gonna be ones who have the same affinity and history as you. You're more likely to become friends with somebody who's in the same stage of life, about the same age, dealing with the same, they have the same interests as you. But ideally, we're also pushing up and down to people who are older and younger than us, and even to people who are not like us, or maybe don't have the same connections or affinity. Cultivating friendships is not easy. It takes time and sacrifice. It's involving commitment to place and commitment to people over money or what I want on a given day. In order to get deeper relationships, you actually have to commit to a few people, connect often, and allow others to do so as well. Just know that some people are gonna connect with one another more deeply on certain things. But even as we allow for affinities, there's some of you, some of us, who have deep friendships and other people who do not. And we need to always keep ourselves open 
to people who are outside of our current circle, because it's people who are moving in, people who are looking. You might find it easy to connect with somebody, somebody else finds it more difficult. Are we the kind of people who are open? And open to God. Who has God put on your heart? What do you need? Listen to God. Look, a church is not a club or an interest group. It is meant to be a family, the family of God. And I'm going to be honest, I've struggled with implementing that in Christchurch Vienna. We've been here for 12 years. Struggled with implementing the extended family metaphor because DC is transient, the way modern churches operate in general. It's hard to force good friendships. They grow over time and organically, and, and people get hurt, or they get frustrated, or they don't want to keep going. All of us are so busy with so little margin, and we don't have time for people anymore. And that's why I've been using the metaphor of home instead of just extended family. I talked about it last week, that home might be the better metaphor. A home is a place where kids, if a home is a, is a good, healthy environment, a home is a place where a child can grow up with safety and provision. And so it means even when you're annoyed with your parents or you're fighting with your siblings, you know that you belong there. It's your home. And it feels like a secure place as you're a kid growing up in it, in a place where you can be yourself, be at ease and no longer trying to perform. And I think that's the vision, is the home and a church as a home is where each of us can rest, be at ease, and grow up and connect to one another over time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you redrew family as those who follow you, and that means we're called into that. But becoming the family of God is not easy. Opening ourselves up to others, committing to others, staying longer than we want to is hard. And our life, our modern life, is so fractured and busy. We pray that you would move in our hearts and cultivate in us relationships of depth and breadth and friendships. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we uh, just want to give a space for our hearts to continue to reflect on that message. Uh, we're just going to actually go back into Christ, in Christ alone, which I know we just sang, but the verse 1 and verse 4, um, and pray that we can, yeah, find comfort in these words and connection with those around us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life.